Hey there, and welcome to Creative License, where we dive into what makes creative people successful and immerse ourselves in that process. I'm your host, Alex Perlman. Meryl Streep, Hugh Jackman, Steve Carell, Andrew Garfield, Sofia Coppola, Rob Reiner. Those are only some of the names who have graced the 92nd Street Y stage next to Columbia film professor and Real Pieces moderator, Annette Insdorf. Her ability to bring out the best in those star interviewees sets Annette apart, and she's constantly drawing on her vast knowledge of film history and the medium itself to extract their process for the audience, who are always giddy to just be in the room with their cinematic idols. Let's learn what originally drew Annette to movies, how she prepares to moderate a conversation with Hollywood royalty, and some of her experiences throughout a long and prominent career. So Annette, let's start from the very beginning. What exactly made you fall in love with film in the first place? Well, uh, if I go all the way back, I was born in Paris, and I came to the United States only at the age of three and a half. And neither my father nor my mother spoke very good English because uh, the native language was Polish and then it was French. So we went to the movies all the time. It was a way of learning the language of our new country. Now, my father had always loved movies, even in his native Poland when he was a young man. He actually told me that sometimes there wasn't enough money to do both having a meal and going to a movie. And invariably, he would choose going to the movie, which entailed walking five kilometers or eight miles to that movie and back. But that's what he chose. So I, as a child, was introduced to a love of the big screen, of spectacle, of actors, of the excitement of entering this uh, gorgeous fabricated world. <laughs> and it never left. It never left me. Uh, even as I became a supposedly more sophisticated adult, I always loved going to movies. And my mother also played a rather large role because we lived in Forest Hills, New York. But every time there was a new movie at Radio City Music Hall in Manhattan that was appropriate for a child, she took me. So I grew up going to Radio City Music Hall, where the experience of the movie was enhanced by stage shows, rockets. It was a full package. Wow. And I think that that set me on a path. Do you feel like what, what you're doing now is almost honoring your parents in some way? I'm not sure if it's honoring them, but it's certainly continuing my father's passion for for movies and my mother's slightly more sophisticated appreciation. In, in some ways, to be honest with you, it's the other way around um, in that my mother was a professor of French literature at Hunter College. But after my father died, I started taking her to movies, to film festivals, to premieres, and she became so passionate about the serious aspect of movies that she started teaching French film at Hunter College. So even though I became a college professor, perhaps because of her as my mentor, she ended up teaching film history and appreciation because of me. <laughs> so wow. it, was, it was always a shared thing. Um, and my father always loved going to films, but he unfortunately didn't live long enough to see any of the more recent ones. 
which there have been obviously uh, a lot of good ones for sure. Yeah. Um, you were originally a performer, though, right? What what drew you to the stage and um, and Juilliard and and aspirations in in terms of that? Well, it it turned out as a child that I had a rather good voice. And that always we, helps, right? It, it helps. And when we were in hotels in the Catskill Mountains, for example, they would always add me first to the talent shows, but later to the actual shows that were performed in the nightclubs of these hotels. Wow. So my parents um, decided to nurture that talent and enrolled me in the Juilliard School of Music Preparatory Division. I would spend all day Saturday every week learning uh, to train my voice. I was a mezzo-soprano with a three-octave range, but also I studied piano, music theory, diction. Um, as it turned out, the Juilliard people wanted me to become an opera singer, which I personally had very little desire to do. This was the era of Judy Collins and Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell. I wanted to be a folk singer. I wanted to have long, straight hair and, you know, be like them and sing protest songs. So I did Juilliard for about five years, but at the point where I had to decide where to go to college and Juilliard wanted me to come to their college, my parents dissuaded me because I had also evidenced by then a, a pretty strong intellectual appreciation of life. I had all great grades that were the A range, and they wanted me to really expand my mental horizons and not limit myself to being a singer. So I left Juilliard, I went to Queens College, I majored in English and French, and it was only when I was in grad school doing a PhD in English at Yale University that I did return to the stage simply because they were doing a performance of Leonard Bernstein's Mass. It was going to be the first performance after the world premiere that had been done at the Kennedy Center. And I toyed with the idea of auditioning because I wasn't that happy being, I don't know, an intellectually vibrant but Ivy League bound <laughs> person. And then I decided not to because I thought, no, I'll never have time to do my schoolwork and the, the performance. But my then boyfriend, his name was Jeffrey, he knew about this and he, he got me drunk. He got me drunk over dinner, knowing where the um, audition was happening. And when we finished dinner, he goes, let's stop back at your room. And we did. And he picked up my guitar and he went back into the car. He said, we're going to an audition. And by the time he drove me there, it was too late for me to get out of it. Slightly inebriated, I auditioned for Leonard Bernstein's Mass. And within, I guess, 20 seconds of singing the song, they said, you're in. Wow. <laughs> I, I guess everything works out the way it's supposed to, right? Wow, Jeffrey, nice job. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it was it was a short-lived thing. I did it in New Haven at the premiere, but we we also did the European premiere and the PBS television version in Austria that summer. We went we went to Vienna, and it wasn't the whole production. Leonard Bernstein personally chose. Well, let's just say he, he, he removed about one third of the soloists, but I stayed. Actually, my part was so small that, you know, I, I didn't think he would remove me. So <laughs> that was good. And you get a free trip to Vienna. That's not bad either. That was pretty exciting. I had never been there. We worked very hard because we, we were doing quite a few performances at the Concerthaus in Vienna. 
It, it was a massive production, including the Vienna Boys Choir. I mean, there were like 200 people on the stage at certain moments, but it was it was a fabulous experience. Wow. Um, originally, what made you want to continue your education with a PhD at Yale? Did you always know that, that you wanted to be an academic and, and be a professor eventually? Not really. No. When I went to college initially, I thought I'd become an international lawyer because that's what my parents thought that that would be a great job for me because I was multilingual. By then, I spoke English, French, Polish, and had picked up Spanish in high school. But when I started college, I realized I loved reading, writing, and talking about literature. That that became far more passionate for me. And I, I switched from any sort of pre-law intentions to a kind of enhanced love of books and writers and poems. And I started writing my own poems and short stories. Um, it just started making sense. I, I was nominated for a Danforth Fellowship. And in, at that time, it meant free tuition, plus they paid me to go to grad school. It was hard to say no to that. Yeah, and that so, seems like an easy decision. Yeah, I followed the path of least resistance because <laughs> I, I, I did love all of what that entailed. But I would have been, I think, equally happy in this world had I not applied to grad school. And that would have been if I had not gotten the Danforth Fellowship. I probably would have gone on to work in film, you know, in film production or film publicity because I loved movies so much. But I think I was in the right place at the right time. And I ended up truly loving what I was doing. Uh, I finished my PhD in three years and started teaching film immediately. I was hired to teach film at Yale on the day that I got my PhD in English. I feel like that doesn't happen anymore. You know, that's, <laughs> that, yeah, that, that's I, incredible. I, I always acknowledge with gratitude how lucky I have been not only to show up in the right place at the right time, but I had very, very nurturing parents. And from an early age, I, I loved what I was doing. So it was constantly being rewarded by my teachers. So um, I didn't struggle that much, certainly not as much as other people I know who couldn't find their path. I feel I feel completely the same way. I, I kind of knew I wanted to be a sports broadcaster when I was in high school, and my parents were always. I was a professional actor as a kid, so everyone kind of knew that maybe that would be something I could be interested in. And and yeah, they were they were completely supportive. It makes a huge difference, honestly. That's right. Yeah, we're lucky. <laughs> very very lucky because there there are some that uh, are still trying to you know, find exactly what they want to do and what their passion is. Yours is, of course, obviously film. When you sit down with with a movie, a new one that you've never seen before, what are you looking for when you turn it on? Um, and I'll just give you the example of a few nights ago. My husband and I went to see Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. <laughs> um, this is a new movie starring Michelle Yeoh. We, we adore this uh, brilliant actress who has martial arts skills as well as nuance. You might know her from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and, oh, Crazy, yeah. Rich, and Crazy Rich Asians. And I had read one or two reviews that suggested this was a very kind of psychedelic movie, you know, with mind-expanding craziness. Not my usual sort of film. I like quiet films, dramas, intimacy. But I always carry with me paper and pen because I take notes while I'm watching. And then after every movie, 
I type up my notes into an ongoing chronicle so that I can always look something up. And if I need to teach a film or lecture about it or write about it, I don't have to start from scratch. So it grabbed me in the first shot. I mean, what am I looking for? I guess I'm looking like any other film viewer to be dazzled, to be grabbed, you know, get my attention. And if you do it well, I'm saying to the screen, you have me. I will not leave you until you drop me. That's why I wrote a book uh, a few years ago. My most recent book is called Cinematic Overtures, How to Read Opening Scenes. And my first line in that book is, first impressions count. And it's true whether you're meeting a human being or going to a movie. So I want that film to tell me how to watch the rest of it. Grab me, make me aware that you have a style and something to say, and I'm yours. So I start writing in my notes that there was this mirror in the middle of the shot, a circular mirror, where you see two children and, a, and an adult laughing. And suddenly the camera goes through that miller, mirror into the room where we are introduced to the character of Michelle Yeoh, who is a frustrated laundromat owner. But because of that mirror, the filmmakers had me because I thought, oh, this isn't just some hijinks, high-tech action film. There's something else going on. And sure enough, the film is filled with circular imagery, which for me is kind of interesting in movies. If you're jumping multiverses, which is <laughs> what, what happens in this particular new film, it's, it's fresh in my mind, so I'm invoking it. If you've got circular imagery, then you, you're, you're letting me know that the story is happening not simply on a literal horizontal chronological axis. It's moving in dimensions and it keeps coming back. It keeps circling back to the original scene before it jumps to another universe or verse, if you will. You know, so, and I ask also of documentaries and of animation, of anything. Let the film tell me how to watch it in its first three minutes. I'm not going to go in with expectations like you have to do this. You have to be this for me to embrace you. Just be coherent within your own terms and take me somewhere and do it intelligently in a way that rewards my active engagement. Do you think, Annette, that this is something filmmakers are taking into account from the very beginning, that this is how someone is going to watch my film, to set it up in that way where, of course, you know, it's just like a good hook, right, in a, in a song or certainly the first couple pages in a book. You want it to hook you. You want it to grab you and pull you in. Do you feel like that's something filmmakers are thinking about when they make these? It's impossible to generalize. Some filmmakers do, especially those who graduate Columbia's MFA program, because they've been hearing me talk about this for a long time. <laughs> but some, some don't. Some, you know, who are, uh, shall we say, content to make a good movie. They want to tell a good story. They want to grab as large an audience as they can. And they're not necessarily thinking about style or formal elements or do my choices of camera editing and music cohere completely with the story I'm telling I mean not every filmmaker has to ask those questions but let's just say that the filmmakers whose work I teach and write about oh yeah it's clear that all of them have intentionality <laughs> as well as craft that, that some of them are making films not just because 
it's the easiest way they know to tell a story, make money and, you know, have a life. But because there's something deep that they need to explore and they're going to do that through characters, through action, movement of camera, music. They're going to utilize the, the cinematic vocabulary to do the best they can for an enriching or sophisticated experience, not just, OK, I'm making a movie. Right. And, and I think we've we've seen that and we can all certainly name those movies that that jump out. Obviously, you're not going to have a great movie without great actors. And through real pieces at the 92nd Street Y here in New York, you've been able to interview some of the most important stars in film and just the ones that I've seen since moving here. I mean, most recently, Andrew Garfield, uh, Hugh Jackman, Julianne Moore, Aaron Sorkin, Steve Carell. I could probably do the whole podcast based on who you've talked to. It's only scratching the surface. Though, what, what is it like to have conversations with these? A lot of them are, are complete masters of their craft. Yeah. And by the way, one should never assume or expect every great actor to be articulate about his or her craft. That is you know, very I, true. Absolutely. And I, you know, occasionally I've been thrilled that I landed a certain guest that I've wanted to interview for years, only to find that they're much better actors than articulators of what they are doing, which is why I sometimes like to have an actor together with the director, because often it's the director and or screenwriter who has a better grasp of the the vision of how it's done, not just, you know, um, the day to day process. But it is endlessly exciting for me. I've been doing this for decades <laughs> at the 92nd Street Y, also at the Telluride Film Festival. I've been the moderator in the mountains of Colorado every Labor Day weekend since 1980. <laughs> it's also a very good gig. You, you've, you've landed some good ones in it. I, I'm very lucky, as I said. And I was, I was extremely young when I started in Telluride and even at the Y. It was around the same time. But I think I've grown into the position or the role of interlocutor. You know, I, I so love motion pictures that I have a genuine curiosity of how is this done? How did you where? Why did you put the camera there? I ask a director or I'll ask an actor. Did you start with the voice for this character that you've created or did it start physically? Was it something, was there an image that, you know, gave rise to how you conceived of your physicality and your voice and whatever? And sometimes I get extremely interesting answers, sometimes less so, but the audience is always thrilled to be hearing performers talk about their process. Now, there are some guests that I've had many times. I think the right now, the person who holds the record for the most number of interviews at the 92nd Street Y with me, it's probably Jeremy Irons. I think I've had him four times. And Ethan Hawke, three or four times. You just These interviewed are, Jeremy Irons again, didn't you? Exactly. That was the fourth one with uh, Munich, Edge of War, a Netflix film in which he plays Neville Chamberlain during World War II beautifully, by the way. Um, and he's so suave and accessible and articulate. And I love that accent and the, the deep gravelly voice. So he's it's always a pleasure to talk to him. Ethan Hawke, extremely articulate, as, as you'd expect from somebody who is an actor and director and writer and musician 
and producer. <laughs> um, and uh, Meryl Streep has been on stage with me a few times. Um, what a, I mean, if I had to choose who has been the most delightful, warm human being on a stage, uh, Meryl Streep is, is probably at the very top. She's an extraordinarily uh, bright, compassionate, smart human being who doesn't forget that she's met you before and talked to you before. She was always ex exceedingly kind to my mother in particular. I, I guess she, at Hugh Jackman, he's another one who's ebullience, who's, you know, genuine care for other human beings, not just for craft of acting or singing. You know, he's a real mensch, as I would put it. <laughs> Somebody who really appreciates good questions and uh, tries to provide the best answers he can. Listen, it was after I interviewed him on stage at the 92nd Street Y, and we got along very well. It was the second time that I had done so. And backstage, he was saying he doesn't know all these films that I keep, you know, alluding to. I said, oh, feel free to sit in on my class anytime you want. One year later, he was in my classroom in February. No. Yeah, February of 2020. He started auditing my class analysis of film language, which gave my MFA students <laughs> a huge amount of joy. Um, and of course, the pandemic began about six weeks later. We moved to Zoom, and he stayed with the class on Zoom. He audited every week with us. That's incredible. Uh, and but you can tell that he has a real appreciation for the craft. I, I think you're talking about when um, he was there with Jason Reitman for the front runner, right? And he ended up, I mean, just what he said and, and how passionate he is about everything just really struck me as well. Absolutely right. And you're, you're correct. It was after that. Jason Reitman and Hugh Jackman interviewed that backstage, you know, he, he mentioned how he'd love to see all these films that I've mentioned. And I Incredible. said, ah, be my guest. And I gave him my card <laughs> and uh, I, he he got in touch with me, I think. And I yes, he emailed me and then I invited him. He couldn't do it at that time, but he did it the following year. Then he started auditing my fall semester class, Cinema History, 1960 to 1990. We were on Zoom. And I can tell you that the ripple that went through the students, because he didn't hide the fact that he was there. He was one of the 60 or so names on the screen, and he raised his hand and he spoke. You could only imagine how the undergrads reacted to his presence in their class. <laughs> it's incredible. And, you know, you've done so many of these these Q&As. I want to get into your process of how you prepare for those, because there are probably a lot of different ways you can go. But once you find out, you know, who it is, who you're going to be interviewing, doing a Q&A with, what happens? Take me through it. I prepare meticulously and extensively. <laughs> These are the habits that I inherited from my mother and that I learned when I was doing scholarly work at Yale. You know, you have to prepare, prepare. I always prepare twice as much as I'm ever going to need on a stage. In other words, I've got twice as many questions that I'll ever ask, but that means I can allow the conversation to go into any particular path and I can always pick up with some of my other questions than the ones I necessarily was going to foreground. And extensively meaning it's not enough for me to have watched the film about which we're going to speak during the interview. 
I try to watch at least, and I'm not kidding here, at least six or seven films that the actor or director has made in addition to the one we're going to discuss. Why? When do you when do you find out that you're going to be doing this Q&A? Like how much lead time is there up to that? Generally at least 2 weeks, at least. Sometimes so you're watch more. 6 or 7 movies in that time span just to to be ready for a sure. Q&A. That that's amazing. That that's one every other night. It's not too terrible at all. And my husband, I'm so lucky because my husband Mark is an actor and he's also a teacher. He he very often does film classes too. And we love nothing more than shop talk. I mean, we, we love watching films together. And afterwards, we talk. We compare notes. He'll raise something that I missed. I'll tell him an interpretation that he finds either brilliant or ludicrous. Um, you know, we, we talk it through. I mean, I, to be honest, everything I do at the 92nd Street Y is greatly informed by Mark's perceptions. Um, we, we talk through a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be doing. And he always sits in the first row. He's there. And, you know, I wave at him when I'm on stage. <laughs> um, so the reason I want to see the other films of The Given Artist is I prefer doing a bit of a career interview than merely an interview for the promotion of a new movie. Anyone can do an interview to promote a new movie. You don't you don't need a genius. <laughs> they just have to read. They need to read the press book, you know, the press kit that tells you, OK, they shot here. This was casting here, blah, blah. I want to go deeper. I want I mean, maybe <laughs> the way you try to do your interviews. I want to know, if possible, how this person approaches not one film, but many. Is there a consistent, coherent set of questions approaches, attitudes, what makes somebody accept one role and turn down another? What makes someone who's made a film in a given genre, let's say primarily dramas, decide to suddenly do a musical or a comedy? And what does that entail? Well, there's your Andrew Garfield <laughs> first couple of questions when I showed Tick, Tick, Boom a few weeks back. Um, yeah. I want to get into also the comparative work. For example, I ask actors how working with the given director of this new movie compares to how he or she has been directed by other great directors. Um, and with directors, I very often ask them to talk about the process of working with certain actors. Is it Do, do you treat on a set every actor in the same way to elicit the best performance? Or do you need to say different kinds of things to actors who may have different training? Some may have come from the actor's studio and they have a whole sense of motivation and of sense memory. And other actors are not necessarily trained. They are intuitive, but they don't have the same vocabulary. So these are some of the questions that inspire my conversations. And I think also that's doing more of a service to the audience, right? Because they might be interested in an actor or a director's new film. But let's be honest, you know, you see that Hugh Jackman is going to be there. You see that Steve Carell is going to be there or Julianne Moore or a name like that. You want to hear a little bit more than, you know, what did they do in 90 to 120 minutes of work? You want to hear more about, hey, what what are their lives like a little bit and, and what were their experiences on, on other movies? I think you're right about that. Yeah. And also, 
I like to ask about formative inspirations or influences in their own work. You know, who did they watch when they were growing up? What made them enamored of the craft of acting? Um, is there something that they have not done on screen or on stage that they're yearning to do? You know, these questions interest me as well. And I, I although to, to be blunt, it, I find it sometimes more satisfying to interview directors, especially if they've also written the script, than actors. Sure. Because directors are more likely to tell you about their view or let's say their vision of the world. I mean, what do they truly care about? What matters to them? Why are they telling this particular story as opposed to another story? Or if I've seen at least 10 of their films, I like to be able to connect what they've done in their brand new movie to something that was already germinating in a previous movie. Um, I, I've had the good fortune to interview people like um, Martin Scorsese, right? Somebody who is truly <laughs> well-versed in the history of cinema yes. and has a lucid understanding of what he brings to the set, to the editing room. Um, one of my favorite directors that I've interviewed actually about about, I don't know, eight times, but only two of them with the Y, is Philip Kaufman, a name that is not that familiar to even savvy cinephiles because he has made films in so many different genres that he's too damn versatile to be having a recognizable style. You know, we tend to celebrate auteurs because we can recognize, let's say, a Tarantino film, you know, oh, yeah. a Woody Allen film, a Kubrick film, whereas the same person made The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is this wonderfully sensual adaptation of a novel by Milan Kundera, and he made The Right Stuff, that astronaut saga adapted from Tom Wolfe's nonfiction novel, and he made the in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the, the 78 version with Leonard Nimoy, Donald Sutherland, Jeff Goldblum. In fact, I'm going to be showing Invasion of the Body Snatchers in my next 92Y Real Pieces remote class. Um, that's what I started doing online when the pandemic began, and it became so successful. I mean, people really kept begging me to do more and more. I've already done 13 seasons of Real Pieces Remote, five evenings each. So we're doing the 14th season starting May 22nd, Masterpieces of the 1970s. And I'm going to show Invasion of the Body Snatchers because it's a great movie. Um, but he also directed Henry and June and Quills and Rising Sun and the White Dawn. I mean, I could go on and on. I know I just, they're all so different. You're right. It, it, to, yeah. be a, to be a master and to be able to do it in that many types of genres is, is kind of unparalleled, isn't it? That's right. And he's also a writer. I mean, he and he let me put it this way. He's a thinker. He has a vision of the world and it's anchored in the same values that drew me to the other directors about whom I've written books. My book on Philip Kaufman was the third of them. My first monograph was about Francois Truffaut's movies from France. Then uh, Krzysztof Kieślowski, the Polish director who made Three Colors, Blue, White, Red, and The Double Life of Veronique. Then Philip Kaufman. And for me, they are all profound humanists who have a very rich visual sense 
that always serves the story being told. It's not just to show off your virtuosity. Ooh, I can put the camera here. Look at me whizzing through the frame. That really doesn't interest me very much unless it's tethered to the narrative. No, that makes sense. Uh, going back to, uh, to to the Q&As and, and the process of not only preparing for them, but then actually doing them, do you tailor your questions at all while you're on stage with an actor or a director? Do you tailor them to what you think the audience wants you to ask, or is it more what you would like to learn from them? Well, here's the great news. I don't have to make a distinction between the two because the audience who comes to the real pieces by and large are the same people who've been coming for quite some time. Now I do have younger, in fact, Andrew Garfield, the, the audience for that was the youngest I think I've ever had. It was the youngest <laughs> I've ever seen there. That, that's yeah. for sure. But it was also yeah. one of the most electric experiences I've had and kind of shows you why watching Tick, Tick, Boom on your couch in December does not even it pales in comparison to watching it with an entire audience that's motivated to be there right and and that is literally cheering after every number performed in the film it was it was truly exciting and it was you know our first time back look the pandemic has wrought a lot of horrible things especially for individuals who've been sick or had families sick members but it also meant that for two years we could not gather for example, in the hall of the 92nd Street Y, and have a communal, passionate experience watching a great motion picture and then getting to meet the extraordinarily talented star. So that was a special night. Uh, but uh, when I, the, the, I, I, how do I put this? I prepare, let's say, at least 15 questions, let's say. And I've found that the questions I ask tend to be what the audience wants to know. For example, I almost always begin with the origin question. How did this project come about? What was the kernel? And then asking about process. I mean, my audience knows that I never ask gossipy questions. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just not interested. Who cares who you're sleeping with? You know, I, that's not what I do. Other people can do it well, but that's not my thing. I want to know how did you do this work? What did it mean while you were doing it? What does it mean now? Um, I, you know, I, I don't want to sound corny or anything, but there is sometimes a spiritual dimension that some film artists will acknowledge if they feel that the person asking the questions is doing so from a good and serious place. Um, so I ask what I want to know because I believe that I have a sense of my audience and they want to know the same. And if I didn't ask anything they wanted to know, hey, they have a chance at the end. We usually have at least 15 minutes devoted to questions directly from the audience. People, they, they want to have a chance also to say to the star, I love your work in this <laughs> and that, you know, and there's there's like an intimacy, despite the fact that you're one of hundreds of people in the audience. How do yeah. you think, Annette, you've grown as an interviewer from the time that you started doing these to now? I guess the most important thing I've learned over the years is to let them talk. Don't interrupt. I think when I was younger... I was more kind of excited and anticipating what people would say. And I had a tendency to jump in. And I've tried to tame that. 
In other words, I want to, unless somebody's really rambling, which is rare, I will just let them say their piece as opposed to jumping in, you know, or taking it somewhere else or, or correcting someone, which I try never to do. Um, so I think learning to listen and to be still as someone is giving a response, that, that would be the main thing. Um, and the other thing is, <laughs> forgive me, I'm laughing at this, a willingness to let things go. I think when I started out, I was a little more concerned about controlling the situation, about asking my questions, about getting to certain things that I thought the audience wanted. And as I kept learning, especially with artists, they're going to take it where they want to go. And I had to relinquish a lot of my innate desire to control and even manipulate. Um, so I, I try to acknowledge to myself, hey, I'm not going to get to ask even half of my questions. And you know what? That's okay. That's, that's phenomenal advice. Annette, this was a thrill. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs> Creative License is created, hosted, podcasted, podcasted, obviously. Let's try that again. Creative License is created, hosted, produced, and edited by Alex Perlman with inspiration and guidance from Hannah Rosenthal. Graphic design by Carrie Lindgren. Our thanks once again to Annette Insdorf for lending her insight and experiences this week. You can find Creative License on Twitter at CLPod and follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at AR Perlman. Shoot me a DM. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.